On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. that by the power of your spirit you would come upon us that these would not just be words on a page but that these would be your words to us we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord the one who is the word made flesh amen a few years back I read a story about an intelligence officer in the Japanese Imperial Army during World War II named Hiro Onoda in December of 1944, at the age of 22, his commando unit was deployed on a mission to an isolated island in the Philippines called Lubang. And in the course of his mission, he was cut off from his unit and he was unable to receive or transmit messages. But his final orders were very clear. He held them to his chest, do not surrender. So he fled into the jungle. He put his elite training to use. He was 
uh, foraging, hunting, surviving, waiting for new orders to come in. And shortly after the war ended, in August of 1945, the Japanese searched for him. They sent out parties. They blared messages over loudspeakers. They dropped leaflets on the island, all to get his attention. But he just assumed it was propaganda because he could not imagine a world in which Japan had surrendered its destiny. So he continued his isolation. He eked out a meager existence in the wilderness. It was only after his former commanding officer went into the jungle to search for him and rescinded the order in person that Onoda was able to turn over his sword and make the journey home. That was in 1974. He had been at war for 30 years. You see, he had this picture of reality. He had this story that he was living by, and no matter what new thing came into his field of view, he would not budge. It took someone with real authority to come and to walk him back into reality. And maybe your first reaction when you hear a story like that is like, man, that, that's crazy. To cling to a story like that, the thing is, We're all like that. We all have parts of our stories that we get locked into. We can't see our way out of them, even when they're not true. Maybe especially when they're not true. See, one of the worst kept secrets about humans is that we aren't primarily rational animals who base all of our decisions on cold analytics and calculated reason. We operate instead by what we believe is possible what the sociologist Peter Berger called our plausibility structure. And that's just a smart sounding way of saying that we all have a story through which we interpret the world and our place in it. And that story helps us filter out what is impossible so that we can make sense of our lived experience. And the stories we live by get shaped by the things that grab our hearts, the things that fire up our imaginations. And I'm not just talking about people who are religious. I mean, everybody is like this. Case in point, uh, researchers at Stanford University conducted numerous experiments on the same theme over multiple years. They had a similar approach. They had groups of students that were taken and were given packets of evidence. And then they were asked, based on that evidence, to form an opinion about a social issue of the day. Uh, Things as divergent as identifying real suicide notes from false ones, uh, fire safety, gun control, you know, really light stuff. And in each experiment, groups reviewed the evidence, they came to a conclusion ready to present, but it was at that point that the researchers stepped in and said that all of the evidence and all of the documents they'd been given, all of the statistics, all of the expert opinions, all of that stuff was completely made up. No basis in reality. Like your uncle's Facebook page. (laughs) But this is where the story gets interesting. The students were asked then whether or not they wanted to revise their original arguments that they had come to in light of the fact that all the evidence that they were given was false. And in all the experiments over the multiple years that they did this, the majority of the students said, nope. They felt confident that their original arguments were sound and they needed no new evidence. In other words, People didn't change their minds even when the facts upon which they based their beliefs were shown to have no merit. Those of you who didn't get into Stanford are feeling a lot better about your education right now. Sorry, Dan. 
Dr. Tyler Staten summarizes the research like this. Human beings have a remarkable ability to ignore evidence that contradicts their beliefs and an equally memorable and remarkable ability to exaggerate evidence that confirms their beliefs. People don't change their minds. They guard and protect their conclusions. And any evidence that might call our current belief systems into question is unconsciously identified as an attack by the human brain and fended off by any means necessary. You see, we believe in stories that arrest our hearts and those stories transform what we see. And this is especially true when the stories we live by are confronted by something like the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And sure, there are all kinds of books you can read about the historical record. You can comb it over. And, and many of those books were written by people who went in skeptical about it all, but then they found themselves actually having to wrestle with faith once they dug into it. But I'm not interested in talking about that this morning. You see, this is a story that has always been divisive because it claims to be big enough to resolve both the internal problems that we face and the terminal problem that we cannot avoid called We come across this narrative about an itinerant Jewish rabbi whose followers claimed that was, was God and who was nailed to a Roman cross on a Friday, was dead and buried, and then came out of his own tomb on a Sunday. And there are all kinds of reactions to this then and today. I mean, Easter is always kind of like a cultural ink blot test. You, you all look at the same thing, but not everyone sees something similar in the pattern. You got to know, though, that's how it was on the first Easter, too. Just consider the cast of characters. They all come onto the scene with their own stories. They all come on with their own internal problems in search of resolution. First, there are the guards. And, and while Luke doesn't mention them in this part of the story, we know from the other Gospels that they're there, that they're tasked with watching the tomb. And if this resurrection rumor is true, it is going to be a smashing success for some. But it will be a crashing and profound failure for them. I mean, they had one job, keep the dead guy in the tomb. So they had a lot invested on it being anything other than true. I mean, call it what you want. Call it a conspiracy. Call it a metaphor. Call it a mass hallucination. Because if it happened, it would shake their world apart and their place in it. And maybe that's where you find yourself in the story. Some of you are here uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, and it's important just to be seen. Uh, maybe for no other reason than because you look good in pastel and you want the world to know it. But, you know, you're here, and this isn't a scene you want to get too comfortable with. You're just passing through. And I know this because over the last couple of weeks, people have told me, hey, I'm bringing somebody to Easter and the subtext beneath that is always, so don't screw it up. <laughs> but I got to tell you, I, I have been a pastor for a while now, and I, I stand up here uh, weekly, and I talk about the things that you know, most of us are, are really supposed to consider, but we're too distracted to do so. And the thing that keeps me on my toes, the thing that keeps it fresh for me, is the realization that the most courageous person in the room on any given Sunday is the one who is trying to figure this all out. Trying to see if what I have to say or if this Jesus that I'm talking about is worth listening to. 
So you might be one of those people who are here and you got dragged along and you're thinking, look, everybody seems nice and I appreciate the ethically sourced, locally roasted single origin coffee. (laughs) But I mean, none of that really matters because come on, resurrection, I mean, it's a beautiful idea. It doesn't make it true. I think of the the philosopher Luc Ferry who writes that all philosophy is essentially about solving the question of death. In his book, A Brief History of Thought, he digs into all the ways that humans have contended with our terminal problem. And near the end of his analysis, he writes this. The Christian response to mortality is without question the most effective of all responses. It would seem to be the only version of salvation that enables us not only to transcend the fear of death, but also to beat death itself. And by doing so in terms of individual identity rather than anonymity or abstraction, it seems to be the only version that offers a truly definitive victory. And I expected him then to kind of detail his conversion. But instead, without much explanation, he said, too bad it's not a real option. And so maybe you've built your whole life on this idea that this story isn't true, that it's just a a children's tale designed to make us feel better about the cold reality that awaits us. And maybe that could be because of the implications of the story. I mean, if the resurrection of the body is real, then that means something for the way you live your life. But you're like, no, I I prefer to do my own thing and manage my own quiet crisis on my own. Thank you very much. Or it could be because of your reputation. You know, you just cringe at the thought of being identified with him or with her or how you would show your face over here if they thought you'd drunk the Kool-Aid and become one of those people. Either way, you got a lot invested in a different story. The question is, is there a better one out there? Well, then there are the women, Mary Magdalene. Joanna, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and a few others who show up to the tomb not expecting it to be empty. They come bearing spices, the ancient equivalent of flowers to a graveside service. They've come to grieve the loss of their friend, their rabbi, a son. But they do arrive and find that the tomb is empty. For them, if the resurrection is true, then this is the best possible news out there, if it's true. But there is a whole lot of fear and a whole lot of wonder tangled up in that if. Because even if it is true, who's going to believe it? And maybe that's where you come in. Something happened that changed your life. Something so real that you can't pretend it didn't happen. And resurrection is the only story that gives a name to what you have experienced. And so this day matters to you more than anything else ever has or anything else ever will. And you are here with a heart brimming full of gratitude. But also with a bit of wonder because you want to talk about your experience with God, but you don't know how. Because you know how it sounds. And maybe you don't even really understand it yourself and you you want to get the story right, but you're afraid that it's going to be dismissed. Words seem like nonsense. Well, then there are the disciples who are are walking away from Jerusalem to this town called Emmaus. They started to follow Jesus as he goes from town to town. And when he finally made it to the big city and they came along with him, they found that it wasn't the place that they thought that they were going. And so they're heading back and they're, they're, Back to where they started. Back to the place where everybody told them they were crazy for getting their hopes up to begin with. 
we had hoped, they say. We had hoped that this was the one who was going to change everything, but now he is dead, and so is our hope. And maybe that's you. You know what it's like to walk away disenchanted, hope withering in the past tense. Listening to the same Easter story that you have heard a dozen times because a nurse you here, but your heart is raw from all of this disappointment that you carry. And, and you're saying, I, you know, I thought this was the true story for a while, but maybe it's just a well-intentioned theory. One that gets, you know, shattered the way that a naive fairy tale does when it gets drawn into the complexity of the real world. Because that's what happened with Jesus, right? I mean, his story went over really well on the outskirts of town and the, the rustic and rural places, but then it got brought into a pluralistic city like Jerusalem, and they killed him for it. When you can no longer reconcile the story you believe with your experience of the world, doubt comes crashing in. And I wonder if that's happened to you. You had a faith and a story that was hopeful and bright when things in life were simpler, but then COVID did a number on you. And you brought your faith into a world of racialized injustice, of environmental catastrophe, of mass shootings, of political brinksmanship, and you wonder if this once hopeful story can actually stand up to the weight of the world that you find yourself living in. So you're on the edge of walking away, disappointed, trying to make a the best in a world where you're not even sure if there is an Easter after a long string of Good Fridays. You long for a story that can bear the weight of your hope, but you need the story to be true. And then there's Peter, the caffeinated disciple. All the gospels single him out because he's got a unique place in the drama. He went from being the de facto leader of the 12 to publicly distancing himself from anyone and everyone associated with it once the movement went south. Luke tells us that he takes off to the tomb not knowing what to expect or what to think, but you can, you can be sure that he had a whole lot of feelings about it. Because, I mean, if resurrection is true, then that's great news for the rest of the world what do I do with the fact that I denied any association with the one who knows the way out of death? I mean, is the resurrection true? Like, yeah, that's an important question. But there was an even more important, a more fundamental question in the front of his mind, a more personal one. Do I want it to be true? Can I bring myself to meet Jesus face to face after what I have done? Can I bear to see him again? Can I bear to be seen by him in all the shame and the weight that I carry? And maybe those questions are the ones that hit closest to you. Not whether the resurrection is true on some grand scale. It's the question of, do I even want to know this God? Can I bear to be known by him? And all the weight and the shame that I carry. I think to one degree or another, Peter is all of us. The most painful parts of our stories get classified in all kinds of ways, but they all fall under the heading of shame. It's as old as the story of Eden. 
All of us are hiding, fragile and fearful, that if we are fully seen, we cannot possibly be fully loved. And we never really grow out of this. We just get more sophisticated in our attempts to hide it. Shame marks our lives in a thousand different ways, but we've all got it. And at best, we can mask the symptoms for a while, but then it spills out more rage, more fear, more loneliness, more shame. We never grow out of it. We just get better at hiding it. So there they are. A cast of characters from the Bible's first Easter story. Not exactly a bunch of heroes with unwavering hope. No, it's the story of people like us, people with internal problems that they cannot resolve on their own. But it's also the story of a terminal problem. You see, there's one more character in the drama, and it's the most unwelcome of them all, death. Before Easter becomes a polarizing story about a crucified God who walked out of a tomb, it is an all-too-human story about grief. See, as Luke tells it, the Easter didn't begin with a hallelujah chorus. It begins with women bringing spices to a tomb because they knew that by the third day, the scent of decay would be unbearable. It is not a pretty image. Death never is. It's why we put it behind a door and we spend most of our lives trying to avoid thinking about it. But then it actually kicks down that door and rudely comes in like an uninvited guest. A few weeks ago, I got a note from a friend back in California letting me know that a mentor to both of us is going to the emergency room because he's experiencing some chest pain. So he asked his wife to drive him in this small community that they had lived in for over 30 years when all of a sudden she couldn't remember how to get to the hospital. And it turns out that he was fine, but she had an aggressive brain cancer. She died on Wednesday. So I sent him a note of encouragement and a prayer that has way more questions than it has answers. And you've all got your own scenes like that where death breaks in and they're usually vivid scenes. As a culture, we do our best to seal ourselves off from it. We spend a lot of energy trying to reverse entropy, whether that's through surgery and through supplements or whether that's by drinking kale and antioxidant smoothies. Some of us even lie and say that we like kale. You know who you are. <laughs> we take all of these efforts to limit the effects. But then when the signs of aging can no longer be hidden, we isolate the dying in sterile rooms where people spend their final hours with people they don't know, doctors, nurses, chaplains. And just for a second, as a, as a little experiment, compare that to the Benedictine monks who take a vow of stability knowing that they are going to die in the place where they live. And whenever death does come from one of the brothers, after burying the one that they have eaten with, that they have laughed with, that they have prayed with and worked with, they will often dig a new grave on the monastery grounds for the next one who is not yet dead. And then every day they'll walk past it as a way of keeping Benedict's dictum in their minds to keep your death ever before you. And this isn't because they have some morbid fascination. It's because they want to live with the question, how are you living your days? 
We try to control as much as we can. We try to put off the inevitable, and that works most of the time. We can get by with that. But then the diagnosis comes. Or we get the late night phone call saying there's been an accident or the person that we have been married to that we cannot imagine life without suddenly cannot remember how to get to the hospital. And you don't have to be a monk to go through life, but at least dignify your life by asking the question, how are you spending it? Because we've gotten really good at pretending as a society, but the cold hard fact is this, the undeniable truth. Death wins 100% of the time unless there is a love that is stronger. So where do you find yourself in the resurrection drama? And no matter where you answer that question, it's one worth considering because the resurrection of Jesus is an event that traces its origins to a particular time, to a definitive event, one that confronted and then shattered all of the stories that the characters of the Gospels were living in. And it's still a startling confrontation of the very best kind. And if you are wondering how to find yourself in the plot, it will happen for you the same way it happened to the women at the tomb. The same way it happened for the disciples on the road and the way it happened to Peter. It is not unlike the way a commanding officer went hunting through the jungle to find a soldier desperately trying to win a war on his own. It happens when Jesus crashes into your story and walks you into a better one. That's my story. I love how the novelist Anne Lamott responded when an interviewer asked her, somewhat surprisingly, how she came to trust in Jesus. And she said this, so I swear, it was an accident. And I think that's more or less how it goes. God breaks in. She went on to say that for her, it wasn't this intentional spiritual search. It wasn't something that led her on a pilgrimage and that she wound up on an Easter service. It was this long slog trying to live through life on her own terms until one day she decided to stop changing the subject. And that is when God found her. The God that she had spent her whole life trying to avoid. She did not go searching. Love came after her. That's how the story goes. Luke's account continues like this. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. It was never the empty tomb that convinced any of them. It was only the presence of the risen Jesus that could do that. Later in this evening, when the disciples are reeling from the news, Jesus shows up to them. His presence cuts through their deepest pain and the deepest longings of their lives. Everyone there is filled with some cocktail of doubt and fear and shame, but all of those melt into joy when love comes to find them. Finally, they had a story that was bigger than their own. 
big enough to hold on to their hope, one in which death is not the end after all. You see, the human condition is poised between these two problems, internal problems that we cannot solve and a terminal problem that we cannot escape. But in the resurrection, everything is different now. The one who was without sin, without shame, found a way to deal with our loneliness, our guilt, our shame, so powerfully that you might even actually want to live forever. And to trust in Jesus is to acknowledge that at the center of all of our pain and all of our heartbreak is a gap that we cannot close by our best efforts, but also a God who is so relentless in love that he stopped at nothing to enter into our story and lead us to a better one. You see, resurrection means that the harm that you have caused, the harm caused by you is taken on his body. And in exchange, he is offering you his life lived in perfect communion in a triune community of love. He promises forgiveness for every personal failure, freedom from guilt and all of the shame that it drags in its wake. He promises that life, not death, will have the final word because he claimed a victory so complete that he took a period off the end of the sentence and the story just keeps going. The joy of Easter, friends, is that everything you need to deal with your internal pain and terminal pain has been accomplished on your behalf. And the life of Jesus is about recovering the plot of the story. The resurrection is about breathing new life into the cast. Which is why after this moment of joy, he gives them a job to do. In the second part of Luke's telling of the Jesus story, Jesus is risen and he says to them, go and tell the story to Judea, to Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. He's telling them, go and live resurrection out in the world. Go and celebrate this this victory over sin and death out in a world that is addicted to storylines of emptiness and death. And so today isn't just an invitation to a finished work on your behalf. It is an invitation to play a part in the unfolding drama of your life. It's an invitation to breathe in the very life of God, to begin living a redeemed life even now, to join in the filling of heaven and earth until everything in this world is covered with his grace and with his goodness. Because now that sin and death are defeated, Jesus is at work in and through a broken people in a broken world so that he can come fully and restore and call this world home. Yeah, it's a polarizing story for sure. But it's also the only story worth living for. And in making it your story, you will see the presence of Jesus break into your life into the world in front of you. That is the story that God has been telling from the very beginning, that nothing will keep him with you. Not your doubts and your fears or your disappointments, not your shame, not even death. Those are not the last true thing about you. The last true thing is that Jesus has ascended to reign over a kingdom that is breaking into the world even now and that one day will come to renew everything. Because of Easter, everything is different.